guys want to meet an internet legend? Let's do it. His name is Brewster Kale. Uh, he invented the first public internet's first publishing system called Wide Area Information Server. That's already amazing. Uh, and then uh, he also co-founded Alexa Internet, which yes, he sold to Amazon. Uh, and he uh, is the founder of the Internet Archive, which is now the largest library in the history of the world. Uh, Brewster, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. Uh, great to have you here. So uh, first, uh, tell us what the Internet Archive is. The Internet Archive is trying to fill whatever gaps there are in the Internet so that we can have universal access to all knowledge. Can we take all the published works of humankind, everything, all the books, music, video, web pages, software, and make it available to anybody curious enough to want to have access to it? That was the dream of the Internet that I signed on to and the Internet Archive is trying to help do its piece to make come true. So um, in the old days, they would have scribes or monks, right? Uh, reproduce the books by hand. Now the Internet Archive scans 4,000 books per day in 18 locations around the world. Uh, they've stored 625 billion web pages, 38 million books and texts, 18 million audio recordings, 77 million videos, 4 million images, you get it. So, Brewster, um, first question that novices might have is, wait, uh, why do you need to store the internet? I see it right there. Uh, I can go to these web pages. What do you mean store? Yeah. Uh, the idea, let, let's just take the World Wide Web, right? The, the World Wide Web, the average life of a web page before it's either changed or deleted is 100 days. That's it. So it's a bit of a cruel joke to call it a page. They, they just disappear. Um, you know, or, you know, Twitter pages, you know, people might go and just make disappear because they want to whitewash their past. Um, or we may just lose all of Twitter in the same way we lost all of MySpace or GeoCities or any of these other uh, wonderful um, corporate ideas of going and owning and controlling culture. And they can just blip, go away. So if, if we don't want our culture to go away, we need things like libraries. Right? So, so if you take like Wikipedia, so Wikipedia, great service, wonderful, we all use it, and that there's the the, the references, the, the, the footnotes, the references at the bottom. So it turns out a lot of those links were broken. So starting in 2016, uh, we went into high gear because of the problems that we really saw in the whole ecosystem around the 2016 election. Um, we went into high gear to fix all those broken links. So we fixed 15 million of them. And we prioritized the books and digitized, uh, bought and or acquired through donation the books. And we digitized lots and lots of them and we have a million links so you can click on a lot of them and click and go right to the right page. And you can see that page and if you want more than that, then you have to borrow the book. But uh, the idea is to try to make it so that you can go deeper than Wikipedia. It's probably the easiest way of kind of understanding the breadth of the Internet Archive, but it's enormous. So who is we that fix 15 million links? How's that done? Um, well, friendly robots, um, but it's written by people and it's also communities. So if you take just the Wikipedia challenge is each language Wikipedia, English is the largest, but there's 150 other Wikipedias, each one of them are run by communities and they get to say what happens and what works and doesn't work and they guard 
their Wikipedia against, well, spammers, trolls, propagandists, paid uh, PR people, you know, the normal cast of characters that troll the internet. Um, and so if you're going to try to write a robot that runs on these, then you have to go through the communities and go and say, okay, this is where it does. And they try it out and you work with them and okay, let's go and, and do some more and let's go and fix some more broken links and let's go and weave some books in. So when you when Ukraine, um, well, was attacked, um, we raised money uh, from people to go and buy the books that were referenced in the Ukrainian Wikipedia so that you could go and if you're Ukrainian that's in diaspora, which an awful lot are, or not wandering out to their libraries any real time soon, that you can go and click to go and see the books on the Ukrainian Wikipedia. So this is the sort of, you know, trying to make the internet and the World Wide Web into a resource that we can learn from as opposed to either just be entertained or baffled by or spammed. And can, so I know that you guys are nonprofit and take donations, but you, also take volunteers and and where can people go? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So all so go to archive.org, try it out, and hit the upload button. <laughs> Just add something to the Internet Archive. About ten thousand uh, things a day are uploaded. The, the number of changes on openlibrary.org, which is the book as a site that's really about books. People edit the uh, the the. Uh, descriptions of books and try to uh, make those kind of like a Goodreads, but open um, that kind of uh, uh, thing. So, and people are are participating in lots of different ways. They participate in if they have technical chops to, towards crawling websites that are about to go down. You know, if you hear this sort of, oh yeah, this uh, this place is laying off fifty percent of its people. It's like, uh oh. Um, and so there's archive team um, that. Uh, is a coordinated uh, group of volunteers that help you know, sort of parachute in and save things uh, before they're gone forever. Because once the, the once the uh, flip is uh, switched, it's it's just gone. So we archive about a billion URLs every day. So we have a lot of materials, but there's things that we don't have as completely as we should. Um, and we're concentrating on news sites from around the world because a lot of those are getting turned off. We just started archiving Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, and uh, Iranian television, 24 hours a day, DVD quality, um, to add into the uh, American and European uh, television collections that we're, uh, we're doing. So yeah. yes, there's lots of ways people can help. So Brewster, now let's talk about the potential downside. So. Uh, I am uh, part of that downside, and so here's what I mean by that. Um, so, uh, but actually, before we get to that, in order to understand that story, what's the difference between the Internet Archive and the Wayback Machine? So, the Wayback Machine is a project of the Internet Archive. So, and it's built around uh, the World Wide Web collection that is uh, collected through um, about a thousand different libraries and archives that. Um, uh, pay actually to go and collect web pages for themselves, but then those collections also get put into this global Wayback Machine. So if you go to archive.org, our most popular service is you can type in a URL, like you know your old alma mater, your old blog site, your old live uh, live notes, you know any MySpace site, whatever it is, and and we hopefully will have copies of of that. Um, so. And I think the downside that you're going to mention, if I 
maybe jump ahead, is not everything really is meant for the ages. And you might want to have um, some pages of yours, your blog, that, you know, is past marriage or something you just don't want kind of around. And then you can write to us and we will, uh, in general, um, unless you're a very public figure, um, we'll, we'll take it out of the Wayback Machine. Well, too late. You didn't. Um, so in, in my case, um, I had deleted blog posts that I wrote that I thought were offensive uh, now, like nearly 20 years ago, but at the time it was 15 years ago. And um, so I thought, I, I don't like these. these, these don't represent me. And so no one had caught me, no one had done anything, no one had even noticed them, and I deleted them, right? And then 15 years later, some uh, folks went to the Wayback Machine and found them and said, aha, this is what Jenks stands for, right? So isn't it true that some people might want to delete things not for nefarious purposes, but just because oh, yeah. they don't agree with that stuff oh, yeah, anymore? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I, so people write to us all the time. Info at archive.org. Uh, and we've got patient services there. And we basically just trying to make sure that um, it's their stuff so that they're not deleting other people's things from the Wayback Machine. Um, and, uh, and then in general, we take them down. If they're very prominent, if they're like just starting to run for office, um, then that's you know, another case, um, and you're pretty prominent at least at this point. So, you know, journalists um, that are sort of changing things around sometimes th that will undergo more scrutiny. So it, it's not robots. There are there are real people here. There are librarians that are trying to figure out what the right thing to do is and how do you balance um, this sort of well, people want access to information, yet uh, some of it's just. It shouldn't be um, that accessible. Um, people were trusting and, and put things up, you know, when they're in college, and you know, sometimes it's just things that really don't need to be up anymore. So it's kind of an interesting standard. So if a random person writes in and they say, "Oh man, I wrote some stuff in college, and I heard about this Wayback Machine. I want to make sure it's not on there," you guys might accommodate that. But if a person got to be large enough, then their mistakes are etched in stone forever and ever. Yeah, well, forever and ever. So let's take Blake Masters. So uh, Blake Masters, uh, 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 before he was running for uh, Senate, um, asked to have his blog taken uh, down, and and we did, um, and and that so that went uh, off. But when he started running for uh, Senate. Uh, we put back up uh, the uh, blog posts that were there since, since he was running uh, uh, and becoming a public figure. I don't remember what the date. I think might have been when he started to do the uh, uh, to, to to run. And so those uh, um, uh, posts were were made public in uh, public um, uh, going forward. Um, so it, it's we're we're trying to balance it. Um, there's in the early days, there was uh, the, uh, the Scientologists uh, really wanted to be taken off uh, the internet back in 2002. And it was an interesting way to try to come up with what should the policies be? So we gathered uh, the search engines at the time and the American Library Association and the American Archivists um, to go and 
come up with the policies and we came up with the Oakland archives policy. And, and we're pretty much still living more or less by that to this day. Um, and some of it, it the, the tweaks are um, for the very, very prominent people um, that are um, you know, government officials um, and, and the like. Yeah, so look, I, I'm in the school of uh, nothing is binary. Uh, although ironically, the internet and computers are binary. Uh, it's not a binary system, but um, but uh, yeah, and so it, uh, yes, this does have some downsides. It just, in my opinion, right? In a sense, it felt like somebody was picking through my very old trash. Um, but at the same time, it has overwhelming positives. Overwhelming. So uh, so I think in a lot of ways, I don't so, want to- So yeah, to it's, it's, a, it's a tough trade off. And yeah, we don't come down on the sort of the hardcore sort of, it's all this way, it's, you know, it's always there. It's like, uh, we're, this whole thing, this internet thing is a, is a big experiment and, um, and people trust it and they've been burying their souls on it. And some people are getting really abused by that trust. And I think if we end up with a system where people don't trust what's going on out there, they'll withdraw. And, and frankly, that was kind of what I grew up with my youth before the the internet is like, you know, you couldn't get heard unless you were happened to be, you know, prominent enough to be on television or write for a major newspaper. I mean, you just you'd, you'd be a consumer. Um, the internet turned that around, made everyone a publisher, but not everything needs to be online forever. And so, trying to come up with that right balance, um, integrating the right people and the right Values um, is is crucial. Um, yeah, are we doing the best job of it? We're we're trying, but you know, it, it it's all a work in progress. Yeah, and Brewster, yeah, I I just don't want people to get me wrong. I, I think you're doing God's work, and, and I think that everything has downsides. So I'm going to end on this. Um, so is this also, in a sense, protecting information from corporations and government and the powerful, etc.? Oh yeah, I mean, you know what, what? The reason why libraries are burned, uh, which is what happens to libraries, is that they hold up information that the powerful don't want accessible anymore. And so, whether that's uh, you know governments or very very large corporations, it used to be kings and church uh, that those are uh, the, the the things that would cause libraries to get. Get, get get busted, uh, get get given into the ground, burned down. Um, so what we are in, interested in doing is being useful to a large number of people to go and make it so that um, there is accountability. So that if you did say things, you can't just go and say, nah, I didn't say that. It's like, well, wait a minute, we have that on television and here's the clip. And you can search and find that by going to tv.archive.org and Go and search what people said, and you can get clips, and you can go and integrate that in your blog or in your newspaper, and it's happening all the time. And you can start to take macro-level views of what's going on by analyzing the all of the text transcripts of all of the news, news channels and start to compare them. So you can start to do things you can't do just by poking around in the internet. So it's not just about saving things, it's about coming up with new ways to analyze and understand our world. And boy, do we need it, because the internet's kind of failing us. How do we go and make it a stronger, more robust, better internet? That's the challenge that's ahead of all of us, and that's what drives us to try to figure out.
All right, amazing. Brewster Kale, everybody check out archive.org. Uh, thank you for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Now, a lot of people pretend that they're oppressed by the government. Uh, that our next guest is actually suffering government oppression, very real. Uh, we're gonna show that to you. Derek Myers joins us, he's the editor in chief of uh, Scioto uh, Valley Guardian in Ohio. And uh, the government has illegally seized his laptop and prevented him from doing what uh, he has a constitutional right to do uh, through the First Amendment. So Derek, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. So tell us uh, what trial you were covering and what caused the government to seize your laptop and to charge you with a felony. Yeah, it's actually what's been dubbed by state prosecutors as Ohio's worst homicide, where eight people was murdered, known as the Roden homicide, by another family, the Wagner family. And it was the son, George Wagner, the first to go on trial. This is a $4 million trial, one of the most expensive, they say the most expensive, rather, in the state's history. It's been six years in the making. And we finally went and we're now in our 10th week of trial. So naturally, we and all the local media want to cover this story that was international when it broke in 2016. And the trial was in its sixth week, I think, seventh week when our equipment was seized. So what was there a sensible reason for seizing your equipment? So in the state of Ohio, the Supreme Court of Ohio makes the rules and regulations that the lower courts, such as the common police court in this case, have to follow. And there's a rule that's in dispute called Rule 12. And basically what it says is that news media shall be permitted to broadcast from the courtroom court trials. In this particular case, this was the first time in recent history that we've known a judge in the state of Ohio to interpret a footnote that says a person, a witness on the stand may opt out, including co-defendants, meaning that they cannot be recorded by the news media if they so choose. Most other courts in the state of Ohio make a compromise. For example, if somebody doesn't want to be shown on TV, then we can stream their audio. And so because we were streaming on our digital platforms, we were streaming the trial in its entirety. And then when a witness opted out, we would have to go to black and we would be hours if not days of black. And it was crazy for us and hard for the TV stations as well. So we and six other news outlets sued the judge in the appellate court, won a temporary order that said he had to hold hearings and that he couldn't simply just ban witnesses from testifying on camera. He held a hearing, he said witnesses couldn't testify. One of the co-defendants, Jake Wagner, arguably the mastermind behind the eight homicides, he took the stand to testify against his brother. Well, I was out of the country that day, so I wasn't able to be in the courtroom. I did have a reporter there and we had obviously the TV stations were all there and we had the pool reports. Jake Wagner opted out, of course he killed eight people, he's admitted to that and he didn't wanna be on TV. A few days later, when I returned back to the States, I had an email from a source who said that they had recordings of the testimony from inside the courtroom of Jake Wagner, where he's admitting to killing eight people. So we assessed the recordings, we had several hours, we condensed it down to a 10 minute version and we published it on our website. That was on a Friday, the following Monday, added a nationwide arrest warrant for a fourth degree felony, which is punishable by 18 months in jail for wiretapping. So uh, you didn't record it, someone else recorded it and passed it on to you. Isn't it well established law that if 
reporter gets a piece of information, even if the original recording was illegal. In fact, it just happened with the LA Times here in Los Angeles, where the city council members were recorded, and you can't really do that without their permission. But when whoever recorded it passed it on to the LA Times, they could publish it, because they're not the ones that broke the law. Isn't that well-established law in Ohio and everywhere else too? Yeah, so not only is that state law in Ohio, a journalism shield law, there's federal shield laws that shield journalists. And then there's Supreme Court presidents by the United States Supreme Court in the case of Bartnicki v. Bopper, which is the case that helped the LA Times, which says if a source passes something onto us, just like you said, we can publish that. And in fact, the Supreme Court cited the exact statute, the United States Supreme Court, Jenk, cited the same exact substatute that I'm charged under, A3, in their dissent that says that uh, that I cannot be or any journalist cannot be charged for this in the case that that happened. But the, they didn't stop just there. I didn't just get charged. They seized our laptops and they seized my personal cell phone and my work cell phone uh, under a search warrant, which in itself is a whole nother issue because search warrants do not apply to journalists in the state of Ohio or on the federal level because of shield laws. To make matters even worse, the search warrant, even if it was valid, was expired by two days. It only covered a laptop, it didn't cover cell phones. So even had they had a valid search warrant, it didn't apply because it didn't cover the products that they actually physically seized. So that means that the Pike County Sheriff's Office here, they weaponized an expired search warrant and they hit a dubious trifecta. They violated the constitution, they violated state law, and they also violated federal law in all ways possible. So it's not just one mess up here, there's multiple ways they've messed up. They seized our equipment, I'm still facing a felony. All in an attempt to find out who recorded open courtroom testimony. Yeah, so um, Derek could get up to 18 months in prison. I mean, it's a felony, it's a serious crime that he's being charged with. Uh, so there are things that are not in dispute. Uh, the warrant definitely did not cover his cell phone, uh, yet they seized it anyway. Uh, the warrant was definitely expired. Yet they executed it anyway. Already on that, there's no question at all that they should not be holding your material and and that they should they can't charge you with a crime. There's just absolutely no question. But even if that stuff weren't the case, uh, the Committee uh, to Protect Journalists, a very serious organization, has come out very forcefully on your side. Uh, what's the point that they're making, Derek, about this case? We're very thankful for the support of the CPJ. They are an organization that protects the First Amendment and they're condemning this arrest and the search warrant. They're calling for the immediate release of our equipment and they're also calling for the dismissal of the charges. Where things stand right now for my charges, they're pending a grand jury in the state of Ohio. They have 60 days to present this to a grand jury and then they'll return a bill or a no bill, and then we'll go through the criminal process. But CPJ is just one of the organizations out of many who have called for the dismissal of these charges, citing those state federal statutes, as well as that Supreme Court ruling that helped the LA Times publish that city council recording. And so, so far the local authorities just are not listening and doing anything to continue to hold our equipment hostage. And we're not able to effectively do our job. We haven't been able to cover the trial since the 2nd of November when our equipment was seized. So Derek, um, why do you think they're, do you, why do you think they're holding their equipment? Do you think that they're searching it right now? What, like, cuz they've gotta know they can't actually charge you. I mean, it's gonna fall, that case is gonna fall apart on the 
day one, minute one, when the lawyer says there was no warrant for this, and the, even if there was, the warrant was expired. There's just they have a zero percent chance of winning. So, do you think at this point they're basically illegally downloading the information on your laptop and your phones to try to catch the person who did the recording, even though they know they can't? Because they figure it's fruit of a poisonous tree. We know we can't use it in court, but at least we'll know the guy, and and in a sense, they're breaking the law. That's correct. So the state statutes and the federal statutes that we've cited in this interview extend to the protection of journalists. The person who recorded this was not a journalist. And so they do not have the protection that we have. So they could very well be charged. And that's exactly what law enforcement's trying to do, which is what you stated. They're trying to find out who recorded this. In fact, they came to me, they came to my lawyers and they said, hey, give up your source. We'll work with you. We'll talk about dismissing your charges, but we want to know. Was it a deputy sheriff? Was it a court employee who recorded this surreptitiously and gave it to you? And we'll charge that person and we'll work with you. And that's exactly what they're doing. But it's not just that particular piece of work product that I'm concerned about. I work at the White House, as you know, Jenk, and I have a hard pass to the White House. I have I have sources inside the Oval Office who give me information on those work devices. So this isn't just the local sheriff's office that we're talking about. We're talking about all the way up to the White House where people's jobs are in jeopardy right now as being revealed as sources for journalism information. And, and work product is certainly a concern of ours right now as they continue to go through this equipment. We don't know if they've gained access to the iPhone which had a password on it. We don't know if they gained access to the laptop either, but we have to assume that they did. And we have to assume that there are a lot of lives on the line, a lot of careers on the line all the way to the Oval Office. So look, this is a core constitutional issue because it's about freedom of the press, which is in the First Amendment, and it is literal government oppression. But also, it's scary because it could apply to anyone because they didn't even have a warrant for your cell phone and they took it anyway. So if, like, is there any mechanism to force law enforcement in this case to follow the law immediately? Or can they go into anybody's home and go, yeah, I didn't have a search warrant for your phone or your computer. I don't care, I'm taking it anyway. And I'm gonna keep it and I'm gonna download all the information on it. And then maybe I give it back to you later, but so what? I already took the information. Is there anything we could do about that? Or can they just do that to anybody? Yeah, so we have what we know, as we all know, is qualified immunity for law enforcement officers, which is a big thing that protects them and essentially says they can do whatever they want. There are civil penalties that can come down the line once the criminal proceedings have finished. But these criminal proceedings could go on for two, three, four, or in the case of the trial that we're covering, which by no means amounts to the same, eight homicides has gone on for six years. So we don't know how long the criminal proceedings are going to go on, and we don't know how long they're going to hold that equipment. We don't know what they're going to do and what kind of weaponization they're going to do when they get that information, if they get it. And the only ramification to that is to sue them civilly. And we can't do that until the end of the criminal proceedings, and we don't know when that's going to be. And even if we did sue them, that doesn't mean we would prevail. And by then, they already have access to the information that they wanted. Yeah, this is absolutely outrageous. And this is a rare issue that is not political. It's not left or right. They can seize non-politicals person's phone and and or what files, anything else they want if this stands, right? Uh, or they could seize a right winger's phone or a left winger's, uh, depending on who the sheriff wants to target. So, which brings me back to their motivation. So, I get it. Their feelings were hurt that uh, somebody recorded this when the judge ordered it not to be recorded. Uh, but do you think this is also a little bit personal? I mean, you guys sued the judge, and is this basically saying uh, you're not in charge? 
we're in charge whether we're following the law or not, we're the ones with the badges and the guns. Yeah, so as I mentioned, myself and six or seven other media organizations in my publication, we sued in one case. And then in a second case, I sued personally myself. And it was that case that permitted the judge where the appellate court ruled in my own favor, saying that he had the judge at the lower court had to hold hearings on if somebody could opt in or out from being recorded. They simply couldn't just say, no, I don't want to be on film. There had to be a reason and the reason had to be, would it justify the impartiality of the case? And so when that court order came down, obviously my name was in the case caption because I was the only person who sued for that. The other organizations was afraid to get a bad ruling. We got a favorable ruling and shortly after that we became targets. And well, what do you know, I had a warrant for my arrest and my equipment was seized. Absolutely outrageous. To this day, Derek faces 18 months in prison on a felony charge on a so-called crime that he most certainly did not commit as the facts of this case prove easily and clearly. So Derek, I guess one last question, is there any way that anybody can help you address this injustice or you just have to wait through this multi-year court system? Yeah, so that, that's the question everyone's been asking. We can apply all the local pressure we want to the local authorities from the national level, from the federal level. But the reality is it falls in the hands of the local prosecutor. And the prosecutor is the one charged with prosecuting the case that we were actually trying to cover. And he wasn't happy that we were trying to get access to that case. They opposed the cameras from being in the courtroom from the get go. And he continues to oppose them. And of course he has it out for the media, so it sounds. So. I guess the best thing that people can do is, is share the link of this interview on their social media for their friends to see it and just get the information out there. And hopefully the local authorities will do the right thing and follow the law. So far they haven't done that. All right, and everybody check out Sayada Valley Guardian. Derek is editor in chief there. Derek Myers, thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you.